Okay, so we've got it up on the screen there, Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered across the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Uh, It's wonderful to see you here uh, with us this morning. Uh, My name is Matt, if we haven't uh, had the chance to meet yet. Uh, One of the pastors at the church. I've been uh, here at Trinity Church Brighton for uh, about 18 months now. Uh, And look, I figured this morning, since I've been here for about 18 months, uh, I figured it was time to... Uh, let you guys in on a bit of a dark secret. I think I've managed to keep it hidden for uh, that whole time. I don't think anyone else knows this, uh, except probably my wife. Uh, my secret this morning, uh, it's finally time for me to share. Uh, you're all listening now, aren't you? My secret this morning, I am really into uh, infrastructure. That's right, infrastructure. Uh, it gets me going, gets me excited. Oh, I feel feel better already letting you guys know that, getting it off my chest. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the state budget was released. It was pretty exciting. Uh, coming out of COVID, of course, the message was that we need to uh, build our way to recovery. Uh, so, you know, that means we need to spend money, create jobs, uh, build our way back to economic stability. And so uh, in the budget, there were lots of big infrastructure projects, lots of big announcements. Uh, you might have seen there's a big new indoor city, a new stadium in the city, uh, a new women's and children's hospital. There were uh, train station upgrades, and the big one, the really big one, $9 billion for the new South Road tunnels. Here we go, there's a pick, $9 billion for the new South Road tunnels. That's quite a bit. That's 17 Adelaide Ovals worth of money if, you, um, if you're playing home, along at home. Uh, and being into infrastructure like I am, when this came out, I was obviously uh, really excited. There was uh, this plan out for community consultation, uh, what the tunnels are going to look like, where it's going to all be, uh, surveys you can do. I'm the guy who fills out the community surveys, um, probably the one guy for the whole of Adelaide, um, which I feel, like, I feel like at least gives me a fair bit of power. Um, I filled out, my, filled out my survey, made lots of comments. I reckon it's a pretty good-looking project overall. Uh, it needs another northbound off-ramp, but uh, I won't get into that now. You can ask me afterwards. Uh, you know, I even go and do the surveys for the projects that I quite like. I figure most people do a, do a survey about a project when they don't like it, you know, like the residents around here uh, who recently managed to stop uh, the Hove crossing train bridge thing that was going on. Uh, but when I, when I even, so I figure since, since most people only respond negatively to these things, I even go on when I think a project's a good idea and I just go on and I write, you know, I think you're doing a great job, well done, really, really happy with this project, definitely go ahead with this. I'm sure it makes them uh, feel much better when they get a survey like that. 
Uh, so yeah, look, inf- infrastructure, it really gets me going. Uh, and I often find myself daydreaming and thinking about, uh, you know, if we had a, a new road here and maybe a couple more train lines here and here and maybe we could sort this out and get this connection working well, you know, we'd, we'd almost get everything perfect. We'd have this kind of perfect utopia. You know, and I'm probably a bit weird, it's probably what you're thinking at the moment, but I do think it's actually pretty common to dream of better. And it might not be infrastructure, it might be technology. Uh, I read an article this week uh, about how scientists are trying to work out how to slow down the aging process. Uh, maybe they'll be able to help people to live to 120 or 140 one day. Uh, or maybe we dream of electric cars that can travel for thousands of kilometres between recharges, not hundreds. Or maybe our dreams are more about unity and things like that. Like uh, it's John Lennon's song, isn't it? Imagine all the people sharing all the world, no more fighting or war. Or maybe we dream of all the world having access to education and all the good that that could bring. We, we do dream of better, don't we? We long for a utopia. Well, as we come to the book of Genesis again today, we find people who are dreaming of better. Uh, like we're trying to build our way out of COVID. Uh, they're in recovery mode too. The bad days of the flood are behind them. Time to, time to build our way back. And their big infrastructure project uh, is this new city. And in the middle of the new city, this showpiece project, the Tower of Babel. Uh, but as we come to the story, if you've been with us as we've been going through Genesis so far, if we've been paying close attention, uh, we also come to this story with our alarm bells ringing. Because we know, don't we, that Genesis has been hitting us again and again with a key truth. It's God who can make things right again. He's the one who can bring order out of chaos. We saw what happened back in Genesis 4, if you were with us, with Cain, who backed his own abilities rather than trust in God. We saw it in the story of the flood, if you were with us last week. God's the one with a plan to put things right. Salvation is only through him. And yet when we come to the story of the Tower of Babel, we see that humans still haven't learnt their lesson. Uh, let's have a think about our story then. I've got three quick points for us today. Not, not, not quick points, three, three points, three simple points. Uh, humanity's plans, God's plans, uh, and then how to be great. Humanity's plans, God's plans, and then how to be great. Uh, the first four verses of our story uh, this morning, they really tell us all about uh, humanity's plans. They're all told from a human, human perspective. Uh, let me have a look. I'll, I'll get them on the screen for us. Uh, it starts off by saying, uh, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinna and settled there. And the people are moving east. Uh, we've seen this in the past few weeks, this sort of this steady movement away uh, from the Garden of Eden, this steady movement east. Uh, in verse 3, they said to each other, come, let us, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Here, here is the big infrastructure project. A new city with a new tower. I wonder what sort of things you notice. Uh, there's new technology. The brick, uh, bricks instead of stone and, and tar. They've come up with this new fancy way of building things. Uh, a little bit like you might remember, uh, for those who like me, like infrastructure, 
uh, the Darlington upgrade, who was over near Flinders Uni uh, last year. Uh, they had this new way of doing bridges. They would build them kind of next to the freeway with big steel beams, and then they would get big trucks and kind of wheel the bridge into place uh, like a giant Lego set. Uh, new, fancy technology. Uh, so these people are obviously pretty clever, making these technolog- technological advancements. They're coming together and building something pretty special. Uh, now, here's a question, though. Uh, what exactly do you think the people are trying to achieve? What exactly do you think the pi- people are trying to achieve? Uh, there's a few things, aren't there? They're, uh, in verse 4, they're coming to build because they want to make a name for themselves. We want to make a name for ourselves. They want to be famous in the ancient world, be remembered. Uh, they're also worried about something, aren't they? They're worried about being scattered across the face of the earth. I guess they wanted to move away from that sort of uh, more ancient kind of roaming nomadic lifestyle and be centralized, have a city. It probably does mean you're safer, especially if uh, your city has big walls. Uh, so what are they trying to achieve? They're trying to achieve uh, security. They're trying to achieve significance. Uh, some people also look at the bit about the tower reaching up to heavens and they, they say, well, maybe they're also trying to get some sort of special access to God or uh, get God on their side or possibly even try and rival God. I think all that's a little bit less clear. I think that's probably probably partly true as well. Um, but really what this is, is it's, if you know the book of Genesis, it's back to Genesis 3. It's, it's back to exactly what sin is. It's back to, back to wanting to find security on our own and not in God. It's back to wanting to find significance on our own and not in God. Wanting maybe to make ourselves God, maybe even replace God. So yeah, the project is pretty impressive, but we know they're going about this all wrong, don't we? Uh, Derek Kidner is a, uh, uh, he's, he's, he's dead now, but he's a, he's a great commentator on the book of Genesis. Uh, he wrote this commentary. It's, it's a bit old now. I think it was in the 60s, but uh, it's a classic. I found this quote really helpful as I was thinking about this this week. Uh, he says, the elements of the story are timeless, timelessly characteristic of the spirit of the world. The project is typically grandiose. Men describe it excitedly to one another as if it were the ultimate achievement very much as modern man glories in his space projects. I looked it up and Kidna wrote his commentary two, two years before man landed on the moon. At the same time, they betray their insecurity as, the crowd, as they crowd together to preserve their identity and control their fortunes. An impressive project, you know, grandiose, big fancy tower, you know, a bit like modern space projects, but underneath, you see what Kidna is saying? Insecurity. You know, they're worried. They're worried about being scattered. They're worried about being forgotten. They're insecure. It's what we do sometimes when we are insecure, right? We find a big project or uh, something to distract us or try and make us feel better. But, but really, is a, is a big tower going to help the people with their, with their problems? Will, will this big tower actually give them security? Well, it, it probably will mean that they, uh, a few less of them die from you know, animal attacks or uh, enemy skirmishes, but uh, is it going to help them be remembered and have significance? Well, you know, people might remember them a little bit longer, but we certainly don't know their names thousands of years later, do we? I think it's not hugely different to how humans think today when we think about uh, human advancements, human projects, new technology, uh, new initiatives, unity. Uh, we put a lot of faith in these things, in what humans can achieve. Uh, and what, what humans are trying to achieve, what are we trying to achieve? We're trying to find security. We're trying to make the world a better place, a safer place. 
Uh, we're, we're trying to find significance. We're, we're trying to be able to say that we played our part, to be able to say that we left a better world for our children and for the next generations. But the reality is, like the people of Babel, a lot of our human advancement doesn't actually work out like we want it to. I mean, in some ways, the world is a better place because of what humans have been able to achieve. Uh, lots of great good, but actually, at the same time, lots of our technological advancement brings about almost as much evil as it does good. I mean, even think of, like, say, the aeroplane, you know, invented just over 100 years ago, and because of the aeroplane, we can travel. Uh, not this week, but, you know, in general, we can travel because of the aeroplane. Uh, but also, a few years ago, uh, a few years after it was invented, the aeroplane was straight away dropping bombs in World War I and, and straight away bringing death and destruction. And, you know, the aeroplane ended up leading to developments like nuclear missiles. Or, or more recently, the internet. I mean, the internet has changed the world, hasn't it? Uh, you know, last year we could sort of have some sort of version of church because of the internet, even when we couldn't get together because of COVID. Uh, but at the same time, the internet brings so much evil. You know, criminals are able to operate much more effectively because of the internet. Drugs are more readily available, even with the police doing their cool police things, which are, uh, are very impressive. You know, because of the internet, uh, pornography is everywhere in our society today. And as we're starting to notice, it's leading to more and more abuse. And yet we still, we still seem to trust in human advancement as our only way forward. Uh, it was only a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you saw this, uh, school students went on strike to protest about sexual assaults. Um, particularly they were protesting about how porn had led to just rampant sexual assault and abuse among high schoolers, which is just shocking, isn't it? And look, I want to be very careful here. I just want to point out the solution that these high school students were advocating for. They were advocating for more education, more education on consent and things like that. And don't, hiss me, don't mishear me, I think uh, education on sex and consent and all those sort of things is really important and uh, is a really good thing and can make a good difference. But uh, the faith is still in humanity, isn't it? Call me sceptical, but I'm not convinced that the core of the problem with sexual assault is that people don't have enough information. Yeah, I'm sure education might help, but surely the real problem is even deeper than that, actually. I mean, making porn harder to access has got to be part of the conversation, right? But uh, really, with all of this, we're, we're doing just the same thing as they did in Babel, aren't we? We are trusting in human achievement. We're putting our faith in humanity and technology and advancement in education to bring about a good and orderly world. And those things are good, just like we saw with Cameron and the Tower, so many good things. Uh, but we're trying to make a name for ourselves, ultimately trusting ourselves for security and significance. Well, in the second half of our passage today, the perspective changes and we see what God thinks of humanity's plans. Our second point, God's plans. Let's pick up our passage. Sorry, Ali, I don't know if you could just flip forward for me. Things just frozen here. God's plans. Just one more, please, Elio. Thank you. Oh, uh, yeah, there we go. Uh, to, the, to the passage, sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's have a look at what our passage tells us about God's plans. Uh, they're building the tower, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, uh, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Uh, so they're building the tower. God puts a stop to it. And could we just go on to the next couple of verses, Elio? Uh, you get this 
little conclusion at the end. So the Lord scattered them from there over the earth and they stopped calling, stopped building the city. Uh, that's why it's called Babel. And we still use this word in the same way today, don't we? You know, Babel, 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 Babel. Uh, this, that is why it's called Babel because there was, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Uh, let, let's just go to the next slide as well. We'll just go back to uh, verses 5 and 7. Let's just notice a couple of things here about the Lord's plans. Uh, the humans, they're building a tower. Uh, what's the first thing God does in response? Uh, it says, the Lord came down to see the city. The Lord came down. Uh, you see a little bit of irony? You know, the humans, they're building this uh, massive tower, big new infrastructure project, reaching to the heavens, they said. You know, they probably thought they were even rivaling God. But what does God do? Oh, he needs to come down to have a look. Uh, I think we're meant to actually see a little bit of humor here, almost like God has to stoop off his throne to, you know, get down and have a closer look, almost like he needs a magnifying glass. Uh, oh, oh, would you look at that? Oh, yeah, there is a little tower there. Well done. What a great achievement. You want to see how I created time? Like, uh, you, you know, this could be the peak of human advancement, you know. This could just as well be uh, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, which is almost a kilometre high. Uh, but we're talking about the God who made the universe with a word. Makes me think of my, well, uh, uh, when my toddler has maybe uh, built a little tower of Dublin or something. Oh, wow, look at that. Uh, you really built that all by yourself? Oh, well, let me take a photo. I oh, know it's already knocked down. Uh, God comes down to look at the tower. But what's interesting then is that actually God decides he needs to do something about it. He stops the project. He confuses their language so they can't work anymore. That would have been a weird uh, day on the building site, wouldn't it, when your mate Sean suddenly starts speaking German? Uh, but why? Why does God stop them? He says, and he says otherwise nothing will be impossible for them. Is God actually feeling threatened maybe? Or is there another reason why he stops the tower? What do you reckon? Well, I, uh, I don't think God stops them because he's afraid, because he's scared. I don't think that rings true of what the author of Genesis is trying to tell us about God, so I don't think that can be it. Or maybe God stops them because he's anti-human progress, you know? Uh, he hates human achievement, just wants to frustrate us and slow us down. Uh, but I don't think that really makes sense either. He made our minds, he made us with creativity. Uh, in Genesis 2, he told Adam and Eve to fill the earth and to subdue it and bring about order. Uh, so he wants humans to bring about good in the world. Uh, I actually think the best explanation uh, is that when God says, uh, we better put a stop to this because otherwise nothing will be impossible for them. You know, I, I, I don't know about you, I automatically think about that in a positive way, but think about it a bit more. Uh, I think God is a God who knows what humans are like. He knows our hearts. He knows that so much of our technology and advancement just gives us greater ability to do evil. I think God is stopping them out of mercy, out of restraint. God knows what would have happened if he hadn't stepped in, if they could have built this tower. You know, nothing they want to do is impossible. I think we're meant to read that as what great evil they might accomplish. Think of what might have happened if World War II had ended differently and the Nazis had, you know, unified the Western world under the banner of the swastika. What great evil would have been accomplished? Or you could make a similar point about communism or uh, some of the great uh, movements of the last century, all sorts of different examples. Humanity united together under a banner of evil is a very dangerous thing. And so God steps in and he stops the tower because he's a God of mercy. Uh, but I think there's another reason God stops the tower too. Remember, remember why they're trying to build the tower again to make a great name for themselves? Well, uh, we've been seeing all through Genesis uh, 4 to 11 that God has a plan to make the world right again. Uh, building the Tower of Babel is not that plan. It's not God's plan to make things right again. 
But did you know the very next chapter of Genesis, uh, we do see what God's plan is. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 12, uh, the start of it. Uh, Mark Curran, who some of you might know or remember, is uh, going to come and join us and preach for us. And uh, after that, we're taking a break from Genesis and we're going to come back later in the year to keep going. But uh, in Genesis 12, the very next chapter of Genesis, we meet a guy called Abraham. Uh, First, he's called Abram. And God comes to Abraham. And we've seen that the Babylonians want to build this tower to make their names great. Well, in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham. And do you know what he says to Abraham? He says, I am going to make your name great. I think this little section of Genesis chapter 11 and 12, it's very important because uh, this really is the turning point of the whole book. We've been told over and over again that uh, if we want the world to be put right, we need to trust in God, not in our own efforts. And as we move from Genesis 11 into Genesis 12, we start to see God's plans take shape. You want to know what God's plan? Well, here it is. He's going to take a man, Abraham. He's going to make Abraham's name great. He's going to build a family. He's going to build a people, which, by the way, is exactly what the whole rest of the book of Genesis is about, Abraham and his family. And through this people, God is going to make things right. It's through this people, the people of Israel, that God is going to take the chaos of the world and bring about order, bring about life. That's what his plan is. That's God's plan. He's going to fix things in his way through Abraham's line. Not through these people making a name for themselves by building a big tower. Ultimately, it's through Abraham's line, through Israel. God is going to come down to earth again, this time not to check out the tower. He's going to come down as a man, as Jesus. He's going to properly enter the world. And in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2, there's a great poem about Jesus. Uh, We're going to just go there for a minute. Uh, It's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus, who who being in very nature God, you know, Jesus was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, came down to earth, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He came down to earth, he died. What does God do? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Back in Babel, they wanted to give themselves a great name. Uh, When Abraham came along, God said, I'm going to make your name great. But when we come to Jesus, God gives Jesus the name that is above every name. You know, the amazing thing is Philippians says that if we belong to Jesus, that actually we're united to him, that actually if we're part of Christ, we share in his great name as well. We also know that Jesus is building a new city, uh, uh, a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem. Uh, It's going to be the center of the new heavens and earth, new heavens and the new earth. Uh, It's going to be the place of ultimate security, the place where all the nations do come together, where every tribe and tongue and nation gathers around Jesus' throne. And you know, in Revelation 22, right at the end of the Bible, it says that in that new city, we will have a name written on our foreheads. It is the name that is above every name, the great name of Jesus. Humanity's plans don't look so good to God compared to God's plans, do they? Get some bricks, build a little tower, maybe make our lives go on a little bit longer, maybe make our names famous for a couple of generations. Compare that to God's plans. Be united to Jesus. Be one of his people. Have sin and evil dealt with properly. Live in the eternal city with people from every tribe and tongue. That's to be given the greatest name of all, the name of Jesus. Humanity's plan or God's plan. Third point then, 
Let's try and land things a little and talk about how to be great. Now, we've been talking today about building a better world and about hope for better. You know, I think deep down we all have that uh, longing for more, don't we? A little bit, that desire for greatness, that desire for utopia. You know, we all have stories about other worlds and, and fantasy stories and alternate realities. We kind of dream of things being different, don't we? You know, kids today, they all dream of going to Hogwarts, wishing the world was a bit more magical and wishing that they were a little bit more special. We have that desire to build something incredible, to change the world, to make a name for ourselves, to leave a legacy, for things to be great. Well, can I say the story of the Tower of Babel doesn't tell us we should try and squash those feelings. They're not wrong feelings. But sometimes those feelings are wrongly directed. I think those desires for greatness, for better, for unity, I think those desires come from God, actually. I think they're part of who we are. But the problem is we try and satisfy those desires by trusting in human achievement, by trusting only in the human race, trusting innovation or technology or in ourselves. You know, I think those desires for greatness, the things to be better, they're meant to point us to Jesus. You want to be part of something bigger? You want to be great? You want to have a great name? You want to see perfect unity? Well, be part of God's plan. Be part of what he's building through Jesus. Humans, we love independence, don't we? We love doing things ourselves. It's Independence Day today. Uh, Did you know? American Independence Day. Uh, I'm sure the Babylonians, as they started building their tower, they probably had their own little Independence Day as well. Uh, But according to the Bible, independence from God trying to do things under human effort and leaving God behind, well, that actually only leads to more evil and more chaos. He doesn't want us to look to the Babylonian solution. He wants us to look to his solution, to be part of his plans, to find our greatness in Jesus. So what does it look like to do that? Well, what does it look like to find greatness in Jesus? I think it affects lots of things. I think it affects how we relate to God. I think it affects affects how we relate to each other. I think it affects how we relate to the world. Let me just uh, draw out a couple of things about each of those points for a second. How does it affect how we relate to God? I'm certainly guilty of this sometimes. I think Christians, often we think about questions like, what is God's plan for me? What does he want for my life? What does he want me to achieve? What experiences does he want me to have? And we come to God with those plans and we maybe say, oh, I'm going to commit those plans to God and ask for his help. Uh, and none of that stuff is really very far off. But the story of Babel, I, actually, I think it actually shows us that actually the Christian life is a little bit less about having God help us with our plans, and it's a little bit more about us getting on board with his plan. There is a sense, I think, you know, it's subtle, but I think there's a sense in which God actually doesn't quite care as much about our lives as we sometimes think. You know, he doesn't care about the specifics so much, I mean, you know, our career choice or whether we get married or not, or uh, what he really cares about is making the name of Jesus great. And he wants us to be part of that. And really, that's because aligning ourselves with Jesus is the thing that we need the most. I read another good quote this week. It's from another commentator. His name is John Walton. Uh, He thinks we all in little ways so that we can kind of have a Babel-type attitude. Have a look at what he says. He says, By nature, we are all pagans, caught in the Babel syndrome. When we think we can manipulate God by praying in Jesus' name to achieve selfish purposes, our paganism is showing When we claim promises as a means of making God do what we want him to do, our paganism is showing. When we come to think we are indispensable to God because of the money we donate, the talents we have, the ministries we engage in, or the worship we offer, our paganism is showing. When we treat God as a child to be cajoled or a tyrant to be appeased, the Babel syndrome is surging in our veins. We want a manageable God light. It's a little bit confronting, isn't it? 
I mean, even here at Trinity, we talk about our strategies, our ministry plans, and I don't think the story of the Tower of Babel means we should throw out strategy or not worry about careful planning or anything like that. And if you're newer, you might not have come across this, but uh, at Trinity, we have something that we call the five M's. They're kind of five things that we want, uh, want for everyone who belongs to our church. So we want everyone to be, uh, ministry is one of them. We want everyone to be serving and ministering to each other. Uh, we want everyone to be united as members, membership we call it, in community. Uh, maturity, we want everyone to be maturing as disciples of Jesus. Uh, there's mission, we want everyone to be reaching out to help others and to share the gospel with others. Uh, but actually, under all of those is the fifth one, and it's what we call magnification. We want to magnify the name of the Lord in our hearts. We want to be growing in love for Jesus, getting a bigger and bigger view of Jesus. And all of the M's are really essential, I think, but magnification is so important because we don't want to think of God as a God light. We want to get a big view of God. As we love Jesus and get a bigger view of him, uh, we get on board with his plans. And I think lots of that other stuff actually ultimately ends up flowing then out of that. Not that we shouldn't be strategic, but we some, can sometimes focus a little bit too much on our plans, not so much on getting, board, getting on board with God's plans. Getting on board with God's plans, it affects how we relate to each other as well. Uh, in Babel, we had this picture of humans being united together. Do you see that? The unity, same language. And then by the end of the story, humans were scattered, all speaking different languages, no more unity. We've already seen that uh, in God's plans, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, this Babel picture will be reversed. Humans will be united again, gathered around the throne of Jesus. Uh, but what's interesting, actually, is that Babel was never completely reversed. It's strange, even in Revelation, there's still every tribe and tongue and nation. The unity is back. Uh, but it's not like everyone is suddenly brought back to speaking the same language, or it's not like everyone is suddenly the same again. I don't know if there's a universal language in the new creation. Maybe with eternity there'll be enough time to learn everyone else's languages. But uh, the point for us is that we don't have to actually wait for heaven to experience unity. Because, you know, in the New Testament, it's very clear that the church is meant to be a picture of unity. And it starts in Acts with the story of Pentecost, very much a reversal of Babel. Everyone hearing the gospel in their own languages. And through the New Testament, there's all these instructions about unity. Even Jews and Gentiles were united together in the early church. So it's never uniformity. It's not everyone the same. It's unity with diversity. And it's so important that as a church, we work to be unified together, work through our disagreements, keep reminding each other that we're for each other, even when things are a little bit harder. Celebrate our diversity because we're not all the same. And really, the way to be unified together as a church is all the stuff we've been talking about, isn't it? Looking to Jesus, looking to the gospel. We're not trying to make our own names great. We're trying to be part of God's plan to make his name great. Trusting in God's plan to be great, it affects how we relate to God. It affects how we relate to one another. Uh, very last thing, it also affects how we relate to the world. You know, those people building the Tower of Babel, what were they afraid of again? They were afraid of being scattered. You know, they wanted to be safe. They wanted to put up a big wall, shut the world out, stay put so that evil could stay away from them. I think if we're only interested in our own plans, we might have that attitude too, right? You know, we want to stay safe. So we put up our walls, we put the big fence up the front, we carefully control our environment, uh, we control what people see of us, control who we spend time with. I do wonder if we're on about God's plan, well, maybe actually God wants us to scatter a little bit more. Actually, maybe keep our door open. You know, metaphorically, you can lock your door, but actually not be afraid of real, authentic community. 
not be afraid to let people see the real you, not be afraid to get out there in maybe places where you do feel a bit more vulnerable or you do feel a little bit less comfortable. I think if we're on board with God's plans, well, God wants us to get out there into the world, to scatter so that we can tell people about the great name of Jesus. Scatter so that others will come and be with him in that perfect city one day. We've been saying today that we have a deep longing for more. We all have a deep longing for greatness, for things to be better. Uh, you know, whether you're like me and you dream about infrastructure or, or people who dream of longer lives or the protesters who are fed up with abuse in schools. Uh, well, we've seen today that God's plan has what we're looking for. A perfect city, eternal life, no pain or evil, everything back in order as it should be. And the question then is, how do we reach out to tell people about the better answers that Genesis 1 to 11 gives us? You know, how do we get creative to talk to people about these things? You know, Babel, I think it kind of brings together everything we've seen in Genesis over the past few weeks. You know, Genesis 1 was all about God who has power to bring order out of chaos. So trust him. Genesis 2 was all about that longing for what we've lost, that desire for things to be better. Uh, Genesis 3 was an explanation for why things aren't better, why things are all broken. Uh, Genesis 4, Cain, just like the people who built the Tower of Babel, Cain who trusted in his own skills, not in God's plan. And last week, the flood, really, it was about the picture of what God's plan is to bring salvation. It's all these big truths about the world we live in, isn't it? They're all so relevant for today. All of this stuff. Well, maybe the next week or two, you'll have a chance to talk with a friend or a colleague. You know, what do you think about the big questions? Why is the world this way? Can humans ever build a utopia? Is there real meaning? Is there hope for better? I think in the Bible we have such powerful answers for why the world is the way that it is. Uh, So I think the question for us as we finish is how do we get out into the world and give them the answers that they're looking for? Might be a good question to think about as we finish. For now, how about I pray? Uh, Dear Father, we thank you again for your word today. We thank you that you made us, that we were created as your special creations. Uh, But help us to not view ourselves too highly. Uh, Help us not to think that we can build a future for ourselves without you in it. Help us to trust in you and your plans. Help us to find greatness in being united to Jesus and in knowing that his name is the greatest name. Help us to know what it is to trust in your plans, to be unified together in Jesus' name, to not be concerned with putting up our walls, but to be more concerned about his name being a great name. Help us to feel these truths in our hearts. Help us to share these truths with others. And we pray in the great name of Jesus today. Amen. Let's get started. Um, Matt, this is a question, and it's, it's a question that, that I actually raised with Matt, and I know others did as well. Um, the, the question came out of the sermon last week where Matt was talking about, uh, I love this word because I love mispronouncing it, hyperbole, hyperbole, uh, exaggeration, um, and the whole issue of did the flood cover every inch of the globe? Uh, are we required to think that? And Matt uh, suggested last week that the actual text doesn't necessarily tie you into that. Uh, but then it raises a question that if that bit of the Bible isn't strictly, exactly, 
I don't want to use the word true because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I would argue it is true even if it is that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. How can we trust that the rest of the Bible isn't an exaggeration as well? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, uh, and partly, um, partly if you are here last week, we looked at how actually when we, we look at the word earth, you know, which comes all through the story, you know, the flood covering the earth. Um, actually, the earth doesn't necessarily mean the globe, so part of it is... I think if you translate it that way, it's probably a bit less obvious that it is the whole world and the whole globe that's um, that's there. Um, but also, you know, it talks about there only being that number of people left on the earth after the flood, and um, it talks about it being pretty comprehensive. So um, I did think, I did say, I think there has to be some sort of hyperbole there, if uh, unless it is a, was a global flood. Um, yeah, hyperbole just meaning they took things and kind of added extra colour and extra exaggeration to... Um, to make their points more clearly. And I, I do think that's part of it, is that the truth that the Bible writers were sometimes trying to write was less about the scientific detail and more about the underlying point. But, um, look, I guess what I would say is that um, when we come to carefully uh, understand what the Bible is trying to say, it is not necessarily always a super easy, straightforward task. You, um, it's always good to ask questions like, why has this person written this and what are they actually trying to do? What's the truth that they're trying to convey? Um, and I think my big reflection on studying Genesis 1 to 11 pretty closely is that they're not trying to necessarily give us scientific sort of historical sort of um, information. They're more trying to make big points about the world. And uh, I don't think it's pure fiction, not even close, but um, I, I think you do have to ask those questions. What are they trying to say here? What are they trying to do? So particularly when you come to the Gospels, um, the stories about Jesus, you know, you have Luke's the clearest example, who right at the start says, I've interviewed lots of eyewitnesses. I'm trying to give you the clearest, most accurate representation of what happened that I could. Um, so it's very clear that what Luke is trying to give us is a clear and accurate biography. So different parts of the Bible are different, um, but those questions are not necessarily always straightforward. Hmm. Um, I think there is something very special about Genesis 1 to 11. It's, it's very old history, kind of prehistory even. Um, and it is kind of unique in some ways as well. But uh, I'd like to hear what you think as well, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Flick the question yeah. back to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I, one of the things uh, I, I would always argue that at, here at Trinity, uh, that we take the Bible literally, but not literalistically, if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> Let me say, okay, if I say to my wife, okay, I love you to the moon and back, is that true? Yes, it is. But it doesn't mean that I've travelled to the moon and back loving her all the way. It means I love her heaps. And it's, it's a way of communicating a truth that is using a, a poetic sense. Um, was there a good Samaritan? I don't know. Was Jesus actually talking about a man who actually walked the road between Jerusalem and Jericho uh, and found a guy in the ditch? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. But is it any less, is the truth that Jesus is communicating any less true if he's made it up as an illustration, as a story, or whether there actually was a good Samaritan? We read the Bible uh, in a way that is sensitive to its context. Uh, and so I think that I haven't been here for all of Matt's sermons. Uh, I heard the first one. I heard the last two. Um, I thought Matt did a great job of actually reading Genesis in line with its genre, in, in line with how it's actually written to communicate that. Uh, having said that, I recognise that Christians uh, have disagreed on 
interpreting some of these passages. Uh, having said that, one thing I would actually say is I've sat down with people. I'm not a literal seven-day creationist kind of person. I've sat down with seven-day creationists and we agree on everything that is important in Genesis 1. To, uh, in Genesis 1. Uh, I don't think the Bible ever builds anything conclusively on the time frame of Genesis 1, for example. Uh, and so I think there is room to disagree in here, uh, but I think Matt's done a very good job of actually leading us in this world. Anyway, not wanting to get distracted into just answering one question. Um, one, uh, one point that just came up, or someone has raised for us, Matt, um, is... Um, Often God in Genesis 1 to 11 uses a plural. Uh, and if you're actually uh, Old Testament scholars and your Hebrews really up to it, uh, you'll actually recognize that God actually speaks of himself in the plural, which is reflected in the English as well. Um, how do we understand that? <laughs> um, yeah, I'll try and be quick. Some people talk about it as being maybe God speaking to like a heavenly court, like other, you know, speaking to the angels or something like that. Kind of like the uh, royal we? Yeah, the royal we, that's yep. right, which, which it could be. Um, I think it's probably uh, Christians, lots of Christians will say oh, it's because it's he's a trinity, it's because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, I think that probably is true. I, I don't think that um, you would have been expected to have got that out of those passages if you were just an ancient Jew and you were just reading those passages. But I think now that we have the whole of Scripture and we know the story of Jesus, when we go back, I think we are meant to see Trinity there. So, um, you know, it's subtle, but I think, I think it's there, yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, here's one. Uh, Genesis 6, reference is made to clean and unclean animals. This is the first time the idea comes up in the Bible. Why does it come up in the flood narrative and what implication does it have for us? Why does it come up in the flood narrative? And... Just a small yeah, question. Um... I, I mean, uh, one thing I think that's worth saying is that I think Genesis, it's written, as you, you, lots of us will know, it's written as part of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, who are all written together. And it was written for the Jews who were in the desert, having come out of uh, Egypt. And one of the things that they were just trying to figure out at the time was sacrifices and, uh, what, and food laws and all that sort of stuff. You know, Leviticus is one of those five books. Um, so they were probably thinking a lot about clean and unclean animals. Um, so that's probably just why it gets a mention in the flood. Yep. I'm not sure there's all that much more to it. I, I don't know. And, and does it reflect us now? No, Jesus, uh, Jesus did away with the unclean, clean uh, food laws. So uh, you can eat your pork uh, for lunch if that's what you'd like. Uh, so that's it. Jesus declared all things clean. Uh, here's, a, here's another question, just another small one. Uh, when God uh, punished Adam and Eve, he declared that women would struggle with bloodshed, pain, birth pains, submission to their husband. Uh, it seems that men get off more lightly, perhaps, than the women. Uh, is that right? Yeah, and, uh, I don't know. I've had a couple of kids. <laughs> I certainly um, didn't have a particularly bad time of it. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the, the curses are pretty comprehensive. You know, they affect the whole world and they affect men, they affect women, they affect Satan. Um, um, yeah, childbirth is pretty hard, though. It's hard to compete with that. Yes, um. <laughs> yes. Having been there four times, I'm happy to be standing here. Anyway, uh, okay. Um, does it not also set men up for failure as there is bound to be resistance in the sinful world? Um, I think Genesis 3, yep, sets us all up for failure, absolutely. 
um, the world is broken. I, I don't think it's possible to be perfect anymore in the sinful world. Um, there's only one guy who was. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's very clear that we, we struggle with all sorts of sins because of the brokenness of the world. It's, it's not that we are not just victims, but we, we are victims. We're also guilty, but we're also, we're also victims. Perpetrators. Think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's, um, the world is broken, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Genesis 3 sets up a problem uh, for which Jesus is the ultimate answer. Uh, and so you actually see beautifully there where God actually pronounces judgment on Satan, uh, where he makes uh, really what is the first gospel promise, where he says, uh, you will, uh, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And there you have the one coming from the line of Eve, who would actually uh, reverse the curse, yeah. uh, pro, uh, the, the, first, the first gospel proclamation. I guess he could kind of say that, you know, does every, every baby who's born get another chance to be, you know, Adam and Eve and decide whether they were sin or not, but I don't, no, I don't think that's how it works. I think, yep. I think we're in a world that is, is, you know, struggles with sin. Yep, yep, that is there. And I think that's a clear testimony of Genesis 1 to 11, that what you see is that uh, come Cain and Abel, the pattern repeats. And, and as you go through, what happens is sin just compounds, 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 and you get Genesis 11 as the fulfilment, as Matt's told us today, uh, with this idea that here you have humanity as a whole trying to find security and significance uh, apart from uh, God. Um, and some hecklers pointed out about Enoch. Uh, didn't Enoch not fail? Well, if you read Enoch, you'll actually see that Enoch walked with, with the Lord uh, and the Lord took him. Uh, Enoch's one of the two people in Scripture uh, who have been told never died. Uh, I think uh, the testimony of Scripture would say that Enoch walked with the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that Enoch is uh, sinless and without blame. That would be there. Now, I think this is the last one. It's a big one. So sorry if you've sent other things. If you've sent other ones in and others have, you can always come and call on myself or Matt. Uh, you can send us emails. You can sit, you now have my phone number. You can text everything and I'll come and sit with you uh, and answer these questions. We, and can, so we can always answer more during the week, you know, via yeah. different means as well. If you, especially if there's one you really, especially want to get answered. Yeah, that'd be good. And it kind of, it, it Ties in. Uh, I'm going to. I have a first dig at this, and then you can add to it. It ties into what we're talking about hyperbole. Uh, the questions come in. If we can choose what to believe or read as factual, does it not open the Bible up to more scrutiny? If we can throw out some content, where do we draw the line? Now, I'd want to say firstly with that question. Um, I don't think we ever throw anything out uh, when it comes to the Scripture, uh, and I think. Just because you read something in line with its genre doesn't mean you're not treating it as fact. And so uh, a classic example that I find, you may be familiar with uh, the book of Judges and there's a battle uh, that is led, uh, uh, there's a leader by the name of Barak uh, and the prophetess uh, Deborah is there and they together fight this battle and conquer uh, God's enemies and uh, she sings a song afterwards and it talks about the stars coming down and fighting for God's people. Now was there asteroid strikes in the middle of the battle? I don't think so. We look at that and we see that's a poem. It's a, it's a song of praise and it's talking about how even creation joined in. 
the Psalms. We read the Psalms as songs. We read uh, things in context. And so I don't think we are ever saying that any bit of the scripture is non-factual. I just think we have to read it. If we're going to understand it properly, we have to read it in line with um, what genre it is. And uh, I think Matt's done a brilliant job at this uh, in that there's a main idea that Genesis is actually telling us. Uh, let, me, let me throw the cat amongst the pigeons for you here. There, for me, every time I read Genesis 1 to 11, it raises so many questions. Okay, Adam and Eve, two kids, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Then he says to God, if you send me away, people who find me will kill me. Well, if you have a strictly literalistic reading, there's only three people on the planet. And I don't think mum and dad are going to do Cain in. So who is Cain afraid of? Well, there's more happening that God is not telling us about because it's not actually important. But what he's telling us is what he really wants us to know to make the point. And so you've always got to ask yourself, what is God trying to tell us here? And I don't think when it comes to Genesis 1, he's trying to tell us about time frames. I think he's trying to tell us about uh, his purposes and his power and how he brings his plans into being. I think when it comes to Genesis 3, he's trying to tell us what is wrong with the world. What he's telling us in Genesis 4, he's showing us this in a vivid example. In Genesis 6 to 8 with the flood, in Genesis 11 uh, with the Tower of Babel, there is a very clear problem that is laid out. Human sin and our hopelessness, we cannot find a solution apart from God. And as Matt beautifully pointed out, Mark's going to come next week and bring us Genesis 12 and these amazing three verses right at the start of Genesis 12 where God steps in and says to Abram, leave your, your, your land Come to the land I'm going to show you. I'm going to make your name great. Through you, I'm going to bring blessing to the world. And he does that in Christ. I think we've probably done enough. Do you want to to quickly... What was I going to say? I was going to say, um, like, I even tried in my sermons to kind of avoid even words like literal, because I just think they're a little bit confusing. Like, what is literal? What does it mean to read something literally? Um, I, I spoke a number of times about, you know, is this scientific, historically true? And as kind of 21st, you know, 20th century post-industrial revolution westerners you know we have a hard time um dealing with the idea that there actually could be other truths other than scientific historical truth you know that that's what truth is right but um it's not how actually most of the world is thought up until that time they they have different ways of thinking about truth um so there's still i think a lot of scientific historical truth behind genesis uh, but you just have to do a little bit more work i think and, and like you say there's lots of examples in scripture where things are described in different ways and you have to ask those questions like what is the author trying to achieve here um i won't even talk about it very much but there's another good example in exodus you have all the people coming out of uh, egypt through the red sea uh and you kind of get it all described blow by blow and then you have the song of miriam and it's uh it describes it with poetic language it talks about you know god's nostrils and all these um different sorts of things um and it's just very clear you know here's here's what happened from more of a scientific historical point of view and here's a more sort of poetic beautiful description of the kind of the truth that god saved them um it's just yeah, there's just different types of writing um yeah. it's not so much true or untrue it's just slightly different types of truth but it's true it's true uh so please uh take a seat